0: In 2012, the late Rachel Held Evans published a book that was greatly appreciated by people who were skeptics of the Bible. Uh, In this book, she purported to take what the Bible had to say about womanhood and to apply it to her life over the course of a whole year. The title of the book is A Year of Biblical Womanhood, How a Liberated Woman Found Herself Sitting on a Roof covering her head, and calling her husband, Master. Now, she lived in Dayton, Tennessee, and she said, I'm just going to take the Bible literally, which is what conservative Christians tell us we should do, and we'll see what the results are. And, of course, the results were ridiculous, because Proverbs 31, for example, she spent a lot of time on, and Proverbs 31 talks about the excellent wife and In Solomon's day, uh, those characteristics that he uh, exalts there and praises there were very fitting for a wife. Rachel Held Evans, however, takes it to levels of ridiculousness. So she says, for example, in verse 17 of Proverbs 31, it says, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. So Rachel Held Evans said, well, I just started working out. You know, so I could build up my arm muscles. She also knitted a a red scarf and a red hat for herself and her husband Dan because, verse 21 says, that an excellent wife is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. In order to fulfill verse 23 of Proverbs 31 that says, that, you are, that the husband, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land, she made a sign that said, Dan is awesome, and went and sat under the welcome to Dayton sign uh, in town so that she could literally fulfill what the Bible has to say there. Well, skeptics read her book, and they felt confirmed. They felt validated in ridiculing those who would take God's word seriously saying if you do that, this is the inevitable result. That's not the way the Bible should be taken. Well, to have that attitude is to not take the Bible on its own terms. Of course you can take the Bible and make it look foolish by trying to make it fit into situations and circumstances which it's not designed to try to comply with but rather to take God's word on its own terms is to understand what God intends to say, has said, and will forever say regarding his will for his creatures made in his image. Failure to let the Bible speak as it intends tells us far more about the interpreter of Scripture than it does about the Scripture it, he or she pretends to interpret. This is particularly true with the law of God. God has given us commandments in scripture, and these commandments come from him as the authoritative creator of everything. These commandments come to us as creatures made in his image, not only showing us what is right, but also showing us the good way, Showing us how we are designed to live. And it's as we get in harmony with what God has revealed that we begin to discover more and more the fulfillment of how we were created to live life as his image bearers in the world. Because God's commandments have been misunderstood and abused so often throughout history, some Christians are tempted to dismiss them altogether. And any talk of God's law makes them nervous and causes them to begin to fear legalism because God's commandments have been twisted into legalistic ways of thinking and living by those who mishandled the scripture. Well, this was the problem that Timothy was facing as he was leading the church at Ephesus. And Paul addresses this problem right off the bat when he writes to Timothy in the letter that we have in the back of our New Testaments that we call 1 Timothy. Certain people were in the congregation and were twisting Scripture, especially God's commandments, in order to teach things and to lead people to do things that simply were not true and were not right. So Paul gives instructions. And I want us to look at some of those instructions that are found in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Our text will be 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. We have Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and if you don't have a copy that you brought with you, you can find that on page 991 of that copy of God's Word. So hear the Word of the Lord as I read it aloud, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In verses 6 and 7 immediately preceding our text the false teachers that are troubling the church in Ephesus are described as those who have wandered into vain discussions in verse 7, he goes on to describe them as those who desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In other words, they want to be known as knowledgeable scribes. They want people to look to them and listen to them and follow their teachings regarding the commandments of God as if they themselves were competent teachers. Of God's law. But Paul says they don't understand what they're saying. They're ignorant of the very subject that they want people to regard them as being experts in. And as a result, they taught things that were directly contrary to the point and the purpose of God's law. Verse 4 says that they used the law to teach myths. And endless genealogies, which promote speculations. Well, in our passage that's before us today, Paul corrects their misunderstanding. And he does so by describing the nature and the purpose of God's law. And the basic point that he makes is stated in verse 8, that the law of God is good. The law of God is good. And he gives us three arguments to undergird that basic assertion. We should stop and consider that statement in and of itself before we look at the three arguments. Because again, so often today, in conservative evangelical circles, the idea of the law being good seems foreign and it makes people nervous. Today, we very often find people pitting Christ against Moses. Or the New Testament against the Old Testament. Or as if the teachings of the New Testament somehow countermand and overturned the teachings of the Old Testament. And they fail to realize that the God of the Old Testament who gave us his word then is the same God who has revealed the fullness of that word in the New Testament. And there's not contradiction. There is relationship. There is distinction But there is a unity to the revelational purposes of God found from Old to New Testament. Because of the things that the law cannot do, people are quick to jettison it and dismiss it as being useless. Well, The law of God cannot make people right with God. It cannot forgive sin. It cannot supply strength to obey its requirements. It condemns and can only condemn those who fail to keep it. And because these things are true, there are Christians who say, well, we no longer have anything to do with the law because now we are in Christ. Well, Paul takes that wrong way of thinking and holds it up and completely demolishes it by saying the law of God is good. It's good. Well, how does he make his argument? First, In verse 8, the law of God is good, and it must be used lawfully to see its goodness. We know the law of God is good if one uses it lawfully, he says. In other words, as God intends for it to be used. Now, in one sense, this is self-evident. I mean, that's true of everything, right? If you misuse an instrument for purposes for which it was not designed, you can get very frustrated with it. If you take a hammer and you try to go chop down a tree with a hammer, well, you can get frustrated with the hammer and say, this is useless. But it's not designed to chop down trees. If you use a hammer for what it's designed for and start driving nails in, you can see the goodness and the beneficial purposes of that hammer. Well, so it is with the law of God. The law that Paul has in mind here is... The Mosaic Law, particularly the moral dimensions of the Mosaic Law. If you look at verses 9 and 10 in the the list of vices that Paul enumerates, it's obvious that he has the Ten Commandments in mind. These commandments were spoken by God audibly in the presence of the nation of Israel from Mount Sinai as recorded in Exodus chapter 20. These Ten Commandments are the only commandments that were written by the very finger of God on tablets of stone, indicating their permanence. It's obvious that the law of God can be used in unlawful ways. This is what the teachers, the false teachers in Ephesus were doing. Using God's commandments to stir up speculations. Some misuse God's commandments to try to make themselves look righteous in the light of them, as if they have in and of themselves the ability To keep God's commandments. But that never works. It cannot work. The Bible never allows us to go very far down that road of thinking that any of us, as fallen creatures, can be good enough for God. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes, If righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In Romans chapter 3, As he wraps up his argument about the universality of sin in verse 20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was not given to us to provide a way for us to earn God's good favor. Rather, the law of God functions to show us our sin against God it exposes us it convicts us by making us aware of just how far short we fall from that righteousness that God requires of us in order to be accepted into his presence Paul tells us in his autobiographical description of how the spirit of God used the law of God in his own life in Romans 7 that this is precisely what happened to him Here, again, what he said is he describes himself being trained as a Pharisee, growing up with incredible respect for the commandments of God, thinking that he could know the commandments and keep the commandments well enough to make God accept him. And yet, all that time, thinking he was using the law, honoring the law, he, in reality, was abusing and misusing the law. And it wasn't until he finally came To see the law in its true and proper light as God intended it. It wasn't until he finally came to use the law lawfully that sin revived in his heart and mind. He recognized that he was undone before God. That he had no righteousness. The righteousness that God requires. And he was helpless. He was hopeless. He was completely dependent upon God's grace. Listen to it. Romans 7, if it had not been for the law, he writes in verse 7, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive And I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The Ten Commandments were never designed by God to be a ladder by which we climb up into a right standing with God. The commandments were never given to sinners as a way of attaining life. Rather, they were given by God so that we might honestly consider them, consider our lives in the light of them, and recognize that by nature, before this holy God, every one of us is guilty, every one of us is spiritually dead. Every one of us is liable to God's judgment. Have you ever stopped to consider yourself in the light of God's commandments that were given for that very purpose? Have you ever just considered and meditated on the fact that you fall short of what God requires of you? That on your best day, left to yourself and your own efforts, you cannot fulfill the demands that God has revealed to us in his commandments. If you've had those thoughts, then like the Apostle Paul, you know what it is to die. You know what it is to recognize that if you are left to yourself And have to meet these requirements. There's no hope for you. You're lost at sea. There's no way that you can rescue yourself. If you've never seen yourself in that light. Then you have not yet used God's law lawfully. You haven't come to the point for which God gave his commandments. And I would encourage you. Spend time meditating on what your life is. Is and what your life would be like apart from being rescued if all you had were the commandments of God and it were up to you to meet what God requires in order for God to accept you. Well, if you have been convinced by God's commandments that your life doesn't measure up, you're aware that you cannot fulfill what He requires, then you see yourself... In the light of those commandments, in the way that God intends for those commandments to make plain. And that's the best place to be, to understand your helplessness so that you can look for and receive the provision of grace and salvation for lawbreakers. That God has made for us by sending his own son into the world. Christ has done everything that we are required to do. He came and he kept God's commandments. He lived in accordance with what God requires of image bearers. As a real man, he never once broke God's law. He never did anything that he should not have done. He never left anything undone that he should have done. He never harbored a wrong thought. He never spoke a wrong word. He fulfilled righteousness by making God's law honorable in the person of a real human being. And he did that so that all who are in him will be accepted on the basis of his obedience to God's commandments. The law will be fulfilled for us in Christ. I know this is a Bible conference and You've signed up to come because you already have interest in the Bible and the things of God. But I also know in a gathering like this, it, it would be foolhardy for me to think that everybody here has been reconciled to God. And so you may know a lot of things. You may be religious and you may have studied your Bible a lot. But I just want to appeal to you, if you have never come to see yourself before God, helpless, left on your own, because of the strictness and spirituality of his commandments, then today God's providing the opportunity for you to come to terms with that so that you might recognize your need for the Savior and realize that Jesus Christ is that Savior. God sent him into the world to save lawbreakers like you and me. And if you've never entrusted yourself, heart and soul, to Christ, then trust Him now. Believe Him. Bow to Him. Call Him Lord. God will accept you for Christ's sake. And as you turn from your sin and your ways of trying to make yourself right with God, confessing your sin and embracing Christ through faith, you can be sure. That God's commandments will no longer terrorize you. God's commandments can no longer condemn you because God's commandments will have been fulfilled in the person and work of your Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. The law of God's good. And it must be used lawfully. A second argument that the apostle makes here in our text is that the law of God has a moral purpose. A moral purpose. You see in verse 9, he says it was not laid down for the just. The just, same word for the righteous. God didn't publish his commandments. He didn't write the law down in order to make people righteous, to make people just. Sinners cannot be made just by the law. You try and all you will find is condemnation because your sin Keeps you from fulfilling the righteousness of God's commandments. Neither was the law given for people who are already just, already righteous. Now who are those people? I mean, who's Paul have in mind when he says, okay, the, the law is not laid down for the just? The people he has in mind are the same people Jesus had in mind in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, when he said, I've not come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. I've not come to call sinless people. Well, who are those people? Where where are they? Where do they live? Well, they don't exist anywhere except in their own minds. These are people who, who think themselves without need. Who think that they are righteous enough for God. The reality is they've just not thought deeply enough yet about what God really requires of them. In his commandments. If they were really righteous. If they were really just. They wouldn't need God's law. To be laid down for them. Because they would have already attained. The standard. Which God requires in his law. Rather Paul says. In verse 9. The law was given. It was laid down for sinners. Paul begins in the middle of verse 9. To list out. One of his famous vice lists where he just gives us in rapid fire succession various descriptions of sinful activities or people in order to make a point. We see this in Galatians chapter 5 and Ephesians 4, Romans 13, Ephesians 5 as well, where he is trying to build a case and he's showing us all of these various evil activities and evil people. In order to show how we need what we cannot supply in and of ourselves. Look at the language he uses. Generally, he starts off, the lawless and disobedient. These are those who disregard or intentionally violate God's commandments by living disobedient to the God whose commandments they are. Specifically, he goes on to describe people in the light of verse 10 of of the Ten Commandments. And notice in this list, beginning in last part of verse 9 into verse 10, notice the succession of the descriptions of sin. Notice the order in which these, these vices are listed. They follow the very order of the Ten Commandments as they were given from Mount Sinai. The first four commandments God spoke from Mount Sinai, govern his creatures made in his image, their relationship with him as the creator. And look at the way Paul begins his list. Ungodly. Sinners. Unholy. Profane. What do those words refer to? They refer to our falling short of our relationship with God. How we have violated that relationship. We are not like God. We love things above God. We disregard that which God regards as holy, like his being, his person, his worship, his name, his day. Paul here is thinking about those first four of the Ten Commandments, and he says this is why the law was given. It's for people who have no regard for God and think they can live their own way in relationship to him. The last six of the Ten Commandments govern our relationship with each other as image bearers of God. And look at how Paul follows down that last portion of the Ten Commandments. Those who strike their fathers and mothers in violation of the Fifth Commandment. That tells us we're to honor father and mother. Murderers in violation of the Sixth Commandment, which prohibits murder. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality in violation of the seventh commandment that prohibits sexual immorality. Enslavers, these are kidnappers, slave traders in violation of the eighth commandment that tells us we must not steal. Liars, perjurers in violation of the ninth commandment. Do you see what Paul has in mind? It's obvious. He's telling us the law is given to expose The lawlessness of people who are separated from God. And then he adds this inclusive statement. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Anything and everything that is outside of acceptable parameters. Which are established by sound doctrine. That's a medical term. It means healthy. Uh, The adjective comes from the medical world to describe that which gives life, that which gives health. What does Paul have in mind here? He has in mind true teaching, correct teaching. His point is that there is a way of living that corresponds to right teaching. There's a way of life that ought to grow out of a right understanding of what God has said. Doctrine and life go hand in hand together. And what you believe will shape the way that you live. And if you live a lawless, disobedient life, then you're living a life that is contrary to sound doctrine. The law of God has a moral purpose. It exposes sin and reveals what God says is good and right for us. And by laying down His commandments... In the Ten Commandments, God shows us what sin is, and he calls us to turn away from it. So the law has a purpose to convict us of sin by showing us what is righteous and showing us how we fall short of that righteousness. The law has a purpose of of restricting the outbreak of sin by reminding us that there is a creator to whom we will all give an account And he has revealed to us his will. And as that will is made known, it has the impact of restraining the sin that we would otherwise naturally run headlong into. And the law has a purpose of showing us the ways that God wants us to live as his image bearers, now and forever. Parents, let me just say that one of the best things you can do for your children is to teach them the Ten Commandments impress upon them the importance of hearing from the God who made them what He says He requires of them. Help them to memorize the commandments. Help them to understand what it means when God says that we are to have no other gods before Him. And whenever we prefer whenever we choose whenever we desire things that are contrary to him or opposed to what he has revealed we're breaking that first commandment help them to understand that these commandments God has given to us govern not just our hands and our feet but our heads and our hearts that God's concerned with our inner lives our desires our attitudes our thoughts Paul says it was through the law that he came to understand what sin is. And until our children or anyone that we care about comes to see their sin, they will never see the need of a Savior. If we understand the nature and purpose of God's law, then we will seek to use it lawfully. And we will not try to... Let the law be used to do something that God never designed it to do. God's law is good. We must use it lawfully. We must see that it has a moral purpose. Finally, in verse 11, Paul makes the point that the law supports the gospel. In accordance, he says, with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted A right understanding of God's law is not opposed to a right understanding of God's gospel. On the contrary, rightly understood, the law perfectly corresponds to the gospel. John Bunyan has stated this well when he writes, The man who does not know the nature of the law cannot know the nature of sin. And he who does not know the nature of sin... Cannot know the nature of the Savior. And so this teaching on God's commandments, on God's law, Paul says, is in accordance with the gospel. What he's just said about the goodness of the law fits perfectly with the truth of the gospel. The gospel's not the law, the law is not the gospel. The law commands the gospel gives. The gospel is a message of good news. It's indicative. It is that which God has done for sinners. It's all about Jesus Christ. Who He is. What He's done. And why that matters. And as we answer those questions from the scripture, what we are doing is we are proclaiming the gospel, the good news of salvation for people who are lawbreakers and who left to themselves have absolutely no hope of ever attaining the righteousness that God requires. Paul says, right understanding of the law is in accordance with the gospel. Paul, the man who is entrusted with the gospel, an apostle sent to make the gospel known, an ambassador representing Jesus Christ, whose life, death, and resurrection is the gospel. Paul, a steward who knows one day he's going to give an account for how he has handled the gospel, says, this teaching on the law. It's not contrary to the gospel. It is in accordance with, it harmonizes with the gospel. The law tells us what God requires. The gospel tells us what God supplies. The law says, do this. The gospel says, Jesus has done that by his obedient life. The law says, pay this. The gospel says, Jesus has paid this by laying down his life on the cross. The law says, be righteous. The gospel says, Jesus is my righteousness. The law says, the soul that sins must surely die. The gospel says, Jesus has died, so I might surely live. The the law exposes us. The gospel redeems us. This understanding of law and gospel has been well summarized in a little poem that was attributed to John Bunyan. And it goes like this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and it gives us wings. What God requires, he gives. So the purpose that he has for his law completely accords with the purpose that he has for his gospel. The law cannot make a sinner right with God, but it can show a sinner his sin and make him know his need. Of a Savior in order to be right with God. It is in this sense that the law prepares the way for the gospel by revealing the bad news of our sinfulness, thereby making us know and feel our need of a Savior, and making us grateful for the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to be that Savior. And as we trust Him, we can be sure. That the law has been completely forever satisfied on our account. And with Him, we can learn to love the law. We see that the law is good. It's right. It reveals what's right. But it is good. This is the way God intends for us to live. And in Christ, as we live according to His commandments, we discover more and more that Fullness of life that Jesus came to provide. Brothers and sisters, there's scarcely anything in the Bible that is more important in our daily Christian living than rightly understanding the relationship between God's law and God's gospel. John Newton made this very point in a letter to a young friend who was struggling with the question of law and gospel. Listen to what Newton says. Clearly to understand the distinction, connection, and harmony between the law and the gospel and their mutual subserviency to illustrate and establish each other is a singular privilege and a happy means of preserving the soul from being entangled by errors on the right hand or the left. Right understanding of the law is in complete harmony with the gospel. And notice how Paul describes that gospel. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It's God's gospel. He planned it, He executed it in space and time. He applies it through the ministry of His Spirit. It's this message that reveals His glory. How? By revealing His power, His love, His mercy, His grace, by revealing His justice. And his righteousness. So that through the obedient life and sacrificial death of his son. He might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. It's the gospel that highlights God's blessedness. His happiness. His joy. His delight in saving sinners and doing so justly, graciously, and lovingly. So it's the work of Christ Christ in saving sinners, that manifests God's glory and blessedness. It pleases God to save sinners by the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. The Scripture says that it delights Him to show mercy. And the mercy is found in Jesus Christ, the law keeper who laid down His life for lawbreakers. In Psalm 50 verse 15, we we see the Lord teaching us the relationship between mercy and grace coming to us and blessing and honor coming to Him. It says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. You see that? Call upon me. I'll deliver you, and when you're delivered, you'll glorify me. We get mercy from God, and in the receiving of mercy from God... He's glorified. He's shown to be the kind of God that He is. The God who has mercy and love for sinners. So we should never be hesitant to call upon the Lord. We should never let anyone demure from calling upon the Lord to be saved. We should be willing to teach anyone and everyone that today's the day of salvation. And as they turn from their sin and look to Christ and call upon God for mercy, that God will be glorified in saving them. We have confidence in that because of the way of salvation revealed in our law-keeping Savior. J. Gresham Machen wrote in the earlier part of the 20th century, A new and more powerful proclamation of the law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. Men would have little difficulty with the gospel if they had only learned the lesson of the law. And so it always is. A low view of law always brings Legalism in religion. A high view of law makes a man a seeker after grace. This idea that we've overemphasized the law, or if we do overemphasize the law, will promote legalism, doesn't understand how to use the law lawfully. It's a neglect of God's commandments that promotes legalism. Because everybody's going to live by a standard. You're going to have a standard. And if you do not understand and commit yourself to and submit to God's standard, it doesn't mean you're standard-less. It means you're operating on some other basis, which is legalism. The law of God's good. God's people must come to see this in a fresh Way with fresh resolve and confidence in the Lord who's given his commandments to us. The same God who gave his gospel to us to save us, gave his law to us to rule us. And it's only as we take his commandments seriously and guard against misusing the law that we can fully appreciate the gospel. As we measure our lives by his commandments, we see our need for forgiveness We see our need of ongoing forgiveness. We see our need of the ongoing work of Christ in us by His Spirit to put sin to death. And the work of Christ that He has accomplished to secure such forgiveness becomes amazingly good news. Because we recognize in and of ourselves, left to ourselves, we cannot attain it. We can't. And the more clearly we see that, the more amazing it is what Christ has attained. And how he has done so for us. As we embrace him with faith. And receive that forgiveness. Our love for him is kindled. And it grows. And as our love for the Savior grows. Our desire to please the Savior grows. And Jesus said. If you love me. You'll keep my commandments. Not so that God will accept me because he has accepted me in his law-keeping son. And I want to be like him. I want to become more and more like Christ. So take God's law seriously. Learn it. Respect it. Don't misuse it. Rather, let it show us the right and good path to follow. And commit yourself to following that path as you live by faith in Jesus Christ. The law's good. Let's use it lawfully. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your commandments. We ask your forgiveness for neglecting your commandments or fearing the way they've been Abused, so often, to such a degree that, that we run away from them, thinking that if we give attention to them that we will somehow become legalistic and miss your grace. Oh God, teach us. Teach us that the law is good. Teach us how to use the law lawfully. I pray for parents, that you would help parents to do this with their children, that they might bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Help husbands and wives to do this, that we might fulfill our roles to our spouses more. Help single adults to see this clearly, so that they might chart their lives and their courses according to your commandments and not what the world tells them they ought to be pursuing. Help those that are elderly, widows, widowers who are finishing their course. Oh God, help them to do so with joyful obedience to your commandments as they set their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Make us a people who will so desire to honor Christ, whom we love, that we will live lives that put on display the power of this gospel that saves us and does so in a way that shows you are just and the justifier of all who have faith in Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.